Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello, and welcome back to Everything Else. This is the Culture Podcast from the Financial Times. That voice is Griselda, and I'm John. We're both culture editors and writers. Today, we're going to be talking about the business of selling cool and whether that's even possible. Specifically, we're going to be talking about the NED, hotel slash members club, which recently opened up in London and everyone's been talking about it. Yeah, and private members clubs were once the elitist domain of the bohemian and rich, but now they're seemingly going mainstream. Or are they? Hmm. And later on, we're going to be hearing from the Irish writer Ema McBride, who is known for her award-winning book, The Girl is a Half-Formed Thing. We love that book. One we both love. And recently, the equally great book, in my opinion, The Lesser Bohemians. Yeah, she came in to talk to us about why modernism is back. And also why there are no awards for good writing about sex. Last night we went to the NED, Soho House's £200 million new hotel in the heart of the city. Yep, right beside Bank Station, for those of you who know London. Private members clubs are back. It's, well, yes, or are they? This is the question that we will be answering this week. So the NED is co-owned and co-run by Soho House and the Sidel Hotel Group. It's slightly different, though, from Soho House as people know it. Is that is that fair to say, John? Yeah, a lot of it's open to the public, but it's definitely more kind of banker types than the rest of the Soho House groups, which kind of pride themselves on their creativity which is the buzzword they love to use. Yeah, in New York a few years ago, Soho House actually culled a lot of its members from the financial services because they were too corporate. So that gives you a (laughs) sense of kind of what they're aiming for in terms of creative cool. So yeah, so we visited yesterday and it is an absolutely amazing building. Whatever you think of it, which we'll come on to... It's stunning, right? Yeah, it's the former Midland Bank, a massive building designed by the architect Sir Edwin Lutyens, which is actually where the name The Ned comes from. He did India Gate in New Delhi, the Cenotaph in Whitehall, very many English country houses. And I mean, it's beautiful, isn't it? It's grade one listed, which puts it on a par in terms of protection with St Paul's and the Tower of London. It was completed in 1939, so that gives you a sense of the kind of era of glamour that we're talking about. Uh, what was your what was your favourite bit? I think I know what you're going to say. <laughs> I mean, I was struggling to keep my composure as we were having a tour of this ridiculously lavish building, but the taxidermy albino peacock was was a highlight. I would say. Yeah, that was on one of the lower level floors in the in one of the hairdressing salons. It's opulent. It's more is more. She kept saying to us, the theme is inspired by ocean cruise liner, so that gives you a sense of the kind of level of tackiness <laughs> i knew you were going to mention that peacock <laughs> that may be a tiny bit tacky but the rest of it i definitely don't think is tacky. Yeah, it's no, one of the most beautiful resplendent buildings i've ever set foot in yeah i mean it's all kind of hand-painted wallpaper and every detail is sort of um taken into account so tacky was unfair and where was that marble from 
Remind from me. it was from South Africa. It was green verdite. Yeah, and there were like how many pillars of it? Clad in columns, ninety something columns. We went down into a pretty cool part, which was a bank vault with this enormous twenty ton door, where originally everyone had their safe deposit boxes where they'd keep their family heirlooms and yeah. Their... So there were like nearly four thousand safety deposit boxes. Around three hundred and thirty-five million was stored down there, which today would be fifteen billion. So, <laughs> being in a bank vault is a pretty bizarre experience. Now people are sitting down there sipping on cocktails, yeah, and you have no talk- sense of what time of the day it is. It could be eleven o'clock in the morning. So we had a quick tour. It's filled with kind of nine restaurants, seven of which are open to the public: spas, gyms. It's basically a posh hotel that you can become a pool. member of. Yeah, yeah, and this is kind of part of a whole host of Soho houses that have been opening recently in Barcelona, Istanbul, I think Tokyo, Hong Kong, New York, London. They're fricking everywhere. Yeah, they now have 18 branches, around kind of 60,000 members and apparently another sort of 30,000 or so on the waiting list. So Soho House is is kind of booming and very popular. Its revenues apparently are struggling to kind of keep up with how much it is expanding. So it's come into some trouble with debt, but it's popular. I mean, it's people want to buy into this brand. Yeah. Do you? No. (laughs) (laughs) Other I quite like do. a lot of the Soho houses. It's one of those kind of guilty pleasures. So maybe. the conditions of joining, apparently, so you'd be fine. You have to be a creative soul. That's that's tick, a quote. Tick. And you have to be nominated by two existing members. So have to it's ask kind around. of you have to know people. Yeah, that's the yeah, idea. Yeah, so you know, right? Yeah, so private members clubs have always been about who you know. I think they started as these kind of gentlemen's clubs. White's was founded in 1693 in London, so they've been around for a while. And it was apparently originally established to sell hot chocolate, which was then a rare and expensive commodity. So they've always been trading in kind of, you know, luxury. Yeah, rare and expensive commodities. (laughs) Yeah, so we're kind of interested in how the idea, this kind of antiquated notion of a private members club and what it represents, something quite stiff, elitist, you know, whether that... Yeah, male. That's a good point. Like whether that's changing or whether this is just kind of Empress New Clothes. So we invited to join us on the pod this week Nimrod Kamer, who is a journalist, online provocateur. You might remember him from our episode on the art of trolling, who can be found often in these private members clubs. Also joining us is another friend of the pod, Peter Aspden, who is the cultural commentator and FT contributor. Well, Griselda and I visited the Ned yesterday. Yes, we did. And you were there at the bar just by chance. Yeah, I'm there uh, many, many hours during the day. Just we did like, wonder, have you been there every day since the 26th of April <laughs> when it opened? I feel like there's many bankers there. But was it coincidence? I'm the only one who's not a banker and they need me. Even though I'm not a member, I just sit there. And I, I like the Jewish delicatessen in the lobby. I'm obsessed about the matzo ball soup. Which is the cheapest item on the menu, three yeah, pounds. three pounds. Yeah, and lapis <laughs> that goes with it. But what else do you love about the night? You were there for a lot of the opening week. Tell us, who yeah. else was there? What was going the on? The biggest night what was the parties? when Tiny Tempa played and uh, Paloma Faith. And everyone kind of like stayed in their rooms afterwards because they got the chairman suite. That's the biggest uh, room they have. Like it's banking terms, the chairman. And uh, everyone's uh, kind of like woke up with them. Actually, I went home, but then I came back 8 a.m. to see who wakes up there. But who stayed overnight or who partied all night? Yeah, so I saw uh, Gary Barlow. Uh, he woke up. And invited <laughs> Big <him> celeb. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, this is it for me. Yeah. Listeners who don't know, this is Gary Barlow of uh, Take That Fame. So who else? was There There must have been cooler people um, than Gary Barlow. It was uh, George Lamb. He's a TV host. Um, he's <laughs> one of my heroes. And people like that. Uh, Jack Guinness, of course. 
people who know Alexa Chang were there. <laughs> we're really there. scraping the barrel people here. People who know Alexa. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Peter, the Ned sounds like loads of fun. Are you tempted? Uh, I, I detected your uh, slightly ironic tone there. Yeah, <laughs> it's not my kind of thing, uh, really, Griselda. Well, the soup, the soup. Looking on the positive side, the mm-hmm. soup in the lobby delicious sounds and cheap. A very good idea. Bankers and Gary Barlow is like a sort of combination <laughs> conceived in uh, some terrible place. I don't see the point of these clubs anymore. You know, at the risk of sounding Groucho Marxish. You know, I mean, why? Why would I go somewhere where there are people like me around it? Not that those are people like me, I hasten to add. So you say any more. What do you think was the point of Well, you know, the, the history, you know, it start, started going back in the 18th century, the famous gentleman, traditional gentleman members club, a self-defining social elite gentleman of a certain class, very upper class to start, and then gradually upper middle class as, as a various waves of um, electoral reform happened and more people felt as if they should be gentlemen and were entitled to this safe space. It was, of course, a safe haven. It was a place to be away from women, to be away from the family, to be away from the tittle-tattle of domestic life and just uh, relax and gossip. Well, I mean, where can you sit and have coffee? Because coffee places, they shut down in London, like 5 p.m. So where can you go? Like, if you go to a pub, you can't work. I mean, well, do you want to work there? Some people. I think this is the thing. I think this is one of the ways in which private members' clubs have changed over the years. So before they would be like, you know, gentlemen's clubs for kind of old Etonian types, networking, behaving badly and making sure that, you know, it would never be heard of. Nowadays, I think these kind of places have like co working areas where you can go and hot desk. You don't even necessarily have to be a member. There's a chain in the US called Neuhaus in New York and LA, and it's only about having an office space. So it kind of like Mm -hmm. changed the the people who go there. You once thought it's cool, but now it's just startup people. People who want to have a meeting, but they want to have a meeting in Cafe Nero. So they want to take their clients somewhere impressive and somewhere cool. It's a mixture of work and social. I think the NED is slightly different because these are bankers who actually have offices. They're not like creatively freelance. Types. Yeah, I think the Ned's yeah. very different from the rest of the Soho House group. That's why they don't allow normal Soho House members in the Ned. Yeah, it's like a different kind of membership, right? Yeah. Nimrod, also, just break down like a typical member of Soho House. They are either working startup or a marketing division of a big company, and they like to go to the gym, and most of them are really trimmed, like their chest, I mean, it's, and the, be- the beard. Nicely honed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, Peter, this is, and Nimrod, this is something um, we wanted to ask you guys about. Do you think the idea of what a private members club is, is changing very quickly? Because now I don't feel like they are, it's not really about elitism or dividing, cutting yourself off. It's more of a, like a a more fluid kind of live, work, more pleb, socialise. fluid. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I mean, look, I was reading one of these London pamphlet I don't even know what it was but there's this description sophisticated and illustrious London's private members clubs are the perfect location to conduct business swig on a whiskey and meet some of the city's biggest movers and shakers (laughs) so we get this kind of I think rather ghastly blurring of work life now of course that's that's a reality and there's all kinds of reasons for that technological reasons and this is an attempt to embody that reality but Really, I mean, I can't think of anything worse, really. I mean, but, I mean, you know, I'm a certain age, you know, and what's wrong with working in an office? I like office life. Or if you need some privacy in a little room at home, as I do, this idea that it's all this sort of fluid, networking, cool... What yeah. else have we given the world, though, other than members' clubs? That's like a national import, uh, export. Uh, we being... Oh, Britain. Yeah, Britain. Britain. Cricket? 
Yeah, but I mean, in these days, <laughs> we're like people, they see it in Miami, they see it in New York. Yeah. And I think one day we would have to bail them out because it's such a national treasure, too big to fail. Members clubs. Member, yeah. Yeah, I think they'll go on, but you know... No one cares about them in Paris, and no one cared about members well, good clubs. good for them, good yeah. for them. <laughs> well, the French are proving in several ways to be the stars of the global yeah. scene at the moment. I just don't understand why, you know, you say they're less exclusive, but they're expensive. I don't know if they are less exclusive, because I think the model is basically the same as it ever was. It's there are mm. these number of people on the guest list, and these number of people who want to be, and then these number of people who are kind of perhaps like us, looking in on the fringes and kind of commentating on it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's still about exclusivity. It's just maybe those people are no longer middle-aged white men, they're women, they're creatives, they're whoever, they're cool, they're some of the people who the bankers are aspiring to be. So the makeup of those people has changed, but yeah. the model is still I one know, of I think, I think, exclusivity. I think the Ned's super exclusive. It costs about £3,000 a year to be a member. So yeah, that's mm. obviously quite expensive. But some of that's the other Soho House yeah. groups, it amounts to something like £3.50 a day. Yeah, it's cheaper no, to stay in the some hotel. Some of them aren't that expensive. Cheaper to stay in the hotel and actually use all the facilities for £150 a night than be a member, maybe. Well, that, this is the thing, though. But you you pay, and then what do you get when you pay? You mm. you still have to buy expensive drinks. The food is still quite expensive. It's not like you're sort of getting something by being there. I don't know. If you go, you get. I don't know. I'm not a member of a gym, but how much is a gym membership? Yeah. So if you go to So House, you get access to a gym, a pool. So it's kind of like a glorified gym membership slash yeah. co-working so space. You know, but but it's sort of it's, it's slightly <laughs> there two fluid. The one, idea. Only two one spas. of the spas is open to the public. Mm. Though. Yeah, they give the, the nicer yeah. ones. Obviously, you know, for this is all ridiculous. You know, because <laughs> I like twenty-first century life, but it's incredibly eclectic. You have a fantastic amount of choices to be at. Cafe Nero, you know, they even make good coffees now. Um, <laughs> or you've got a bit of gym, or you can go for a run in the park. Or you, get, you know, there's this amazing, amazing diversity of of of, of all kinds of things. Uh, there's an, but uh, is there a sense of the, achievement when you sit in Costa Coffee? Is there a sense of achievement sitting next to Gary Barlow? Well, yeah, but then there's the whole circle of maybe I did not achieve. You think about your life. What have I done? I'm all for that, but the, of course the French, we keep coming back to the French, the French taught us that the place to think about your life is the cafe. Mm. And cafe. in a sense you want to sit in the cafe and watch the world going by, whereas if you sit in the cafe at the Ned, the world that you are watching going by is a kind of fabricated, fake world it's of people exact, who are paying well, to be there. It's a simulacrum of a world. Mm. You want to see different people, don't you? So it comes back to elitism. So it's yeah, it's, it's saying that, you no, I don't want to see all these people. I don't want to sit in Cafe Nero. I want to sit in the Ned and see, you know, the word that they use a lot in the Soho House group is like-minded people, which yeah. is well, just already, a kind of nasty euphemism. There's the word to avoid membership of these things. I mean, really, yeah. do we really want to mix with like-minded people all the time? That's terribly sad. It's about uh, property also. People love big, lavish properties. And so how's both, like, for example, in Istanbul, the old American embassy, and that's the club there. Everyone's curious to see what's inside and who else would, like, buy that building. It's very cheap now, so how's Istanbul to stay since the army coup. And it's a great place to see the tanks and the helicopter if you see on the rooftop of Soho Istanbul. <laughs> okay, this is getting surreal. I'm not quite sure that's their sure um, club to watch. That's their selling unravel. point. Yeah. But imagine, I mean, they, they're venturing oh. east. They could open in Iraq and, and uh, Iran. That's a fascinating day. idea. <laughs> we have to get Nick Jones on the phone. <laughs> As for the idea that they're cool in some way, I mean, the fact is, in the post-war world, 
along came this thing called popular culture, which really destroyed the idea that you can buy into cool. The focus of the most important cultural phenomenon of the post-war world was a Liverpool cellar bar. In the 1970s, downtown New York, you had this extraordinary scene, the invention of hip-hop and rap and punk and all these incredible things going on at the same time. That was not manufactured. That was not something you could buy into. You just had to be there. It was spontaneous. But what you're saying, Peter, is that you can't necessarily buy cool. Cool is a kind of confluence of factors and time and place. And you're either there or you're not there. Exactly. But going back to this idea about exclusivity in private members' clubs... Richard Nixon once said of the Bohemian Club in the US, he said, anyone can aspire to be president of the United States, but few have any hope of becoming president of the Bohemian Club. But recently, the um, Peter York, the guy who wrote the official Slow Ranger handbook, he was kind of bemoaning how oversupply has ruined the magic of private members clubs. There are so many of them now. I think that idea is really being watered down and they're becoming just mm-hmm. far more normal places to hang out. I- I'm sure that's probably true, yeah. But, I mean, if they're fairly normal, you can find that on the street outside. It's just this need to belong. Look, I guess it's tribal behaviour and one would think we'd sort of evolved away from that or at least certain (laughs) sections of our society would have kind of grown up and think actually the world out there is full of amazing interesting curious things including things you just bump into serendipity randomness i hate to get all postmodern on you but i mean these are these are go on yeah well these are (laughs) these are the great great things about living in a city like london you know you can just Things into happen. the most extraordinary mm. thing. things happen to you, you know. So rather than thinking so much about private members clubs, which can all look after themselves, why don't we concentrate on really improving public facilities, you know, really making fabulous outdoor swimming pools, for example, so that the outdoor swimming pool at Shoreditch House doesn't become something uh, such a great thing to brag about. Make all these things available to everyone. What if Corbyn gets elected? Well, yeah, we'll nationalise all the private members clubs. That would be good. Go on your way. <laughs> so where do we think private members clubs are going to be in five, ten years' time? Personally, I'm waiting for one in Peckham to open, and then, yeah, I'll well, be there. I'll yes. join. You're Surely desperate to become a member of the I know, so I'm very has. surprised there isn't one. Yeah, there already. have been rumours. We're not going to get rid of tribalism, which is what this is in the next five to ten years. The one good thing is that they are, as you say, they're kind of slightly less expensive. They are, in theory, a little bit more accessible and surely accessibility to everyone that kind of democratic egalitarian impulse is one of the great things about the times in which we live so maybe that would be a good thing i think the future is members club within members clubs like i went to so house with some members and there was another room inside so house that was like emma stone was there and they were celebrating something and i was no, no members were allowed in even though it was inside the members club so like another level effect. Well, that's like the VVIP ticket yes. as well. Yes, that's yeah. the become ever more refined. You know? Clearly. But, you know, contrast this with something like the British Museum, one of the greatest institutions in the world, which was founded back in the 18th century to be free and accessible for everyone to come in and see the wonders of the world. That's the kind of thing that we should be lauding not places where you can skulk away. You know, I mean, it makes me laugh. The 18th century, where when one a lot of these gentlemen's clubs started, so-called the Age of Enlightenment, and immediately all the leading lights of this figure hide themselves away in a dark, fusty room to kind of discuss <laughs> the great issues of the day. I mean, there's your, yeah. there's your paradox yeah. right there. Griselda, would you ever join Soho House? I don't think it's worth the money, to be honest. I'm too stingy. I think you can go to very nice bars and restaurants in London and have probably a nicer time. 
My problem is I want to go to all the members clubs. And if I'm a member of one <laughs> of them, all of my money will go there. And that's why I can't afford to be just a member of one. I'm on the mailing list of the National Theatre, and that's about as far as my uh, <laughs> membership needs go. It's the cutting edge, of course. Cool. <laughs> yeah, British yeah. Airways, silver, gold, oh, yes. did you do that? Bronze. Yeah, bronze is yeah. good. Bronze is good. Yeah, bronze is You're good. a member of that. Yeah, so so no. we're all members of something. That's true. That's true. Next, we have the Irish writer Ema McBride. She came to fame in 2013 with the novel A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing. It's very brilliant. It's a brilliant novel, yeah. Lots of people consider it to be. It won the Goldsmiths Prize, the first year of that prize. It won the Bailey's Women's Prize. Several others, including the Desmond Elliott Prize and Geoffrey Faber Memorial Prize. So yeah, she won... <laughs> much lauded. What do you love most about her work? Her writing style is very unusual, I think. She gets compared to modernists like Joyce, which is partly the Irish thing, but also because her writing is very kind of about the inner lives of her characters. So and she writes in this very super kind of fragmented way, doesn't she? Yeah, exactly. So what you're hearing or what you're reading, rather, they're thoughts rather than words that are spoken out loud necessarily. And it's kind of language in a pre-verbal state. So it's um, trains of images and things. Is she our first um, pre-verbal author to be on the pod? <laughs> We've got a little string of modernists coming up. Yeah, so she's um, the first of them. But yeah, it takes a while to get into, but then you kind of fall into this rhythm and it's very lyrical almost yeah I find anyway yeah definitely I think because you sort of get to know the language it's like you're learning a language reading it so it becomes very intimate because you have a, a real experience with the book in a way that I think if it was written in a kind of standard English you probably wouldn't get so that's her first book and her latest book came out last year the lesser bohemians the paperback is out now it deals with some similar themes about abuse and sex not not to kind of spoil anything but some of the darkness that's in A Girl as a Half-Born Thing is there again in Lesser Bohemians. Although I think overall it's a more kind of poppy, light book in a way. And that's not at all to say it's like easy reading. I mean, it's it's definitely a very Ian McBride. It's on my reading list. I, I am coming really to it I really recommend it. If I picked it up and opened it, would I recognise it? It's obviously yes. her. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, the style is that, that same kind of broken language, like very much kind of interior lives. But it's really a love story, which I guess is is why it's a bit different. Less harrowing than the than the debut. It's yeah, I think that's why I say lighter. I think it is definitely less harrowing, more kind of hopeful. It's about moving to London as a really young woman in the nineties and paints a very vivid picture of London at that time, particularly kind of Kentish Town, Camden Town, all the sort of pubs and the clubs and the drinking. So Griselda, will I like it as much as the first one? It's hard to say. Uh, it's quite different, as I said. The characters are great. I mean, the reason to read it is for these two central characters and their relationship. So, yeah, I'm going to say yes, you would. <laughs> OK. OK, listeners, here is Ema McBride. When I first started Ulysses, I was about to start a terrible temping job in a records department at a bank in the city, and I was filled with despair, existential and otherwise, and thought, how will I survive this terrible ordeal and uh, thought well I'll, I'll read Ulysses it's been sitting on the shelf for a couple of years and I haven't got around to it so that morning in September I I got on the train at Bruce Grove and I opened up Ulysses and I started to read and when I got off at Liverpool Street I just thought oh Jesus right that's the beginning everything I've written before is rubbish this is day zero this is the start
I started writing as a child and continued on to dreadful poetry in my teens. I suppose I always thought that I would write, but in my late teens, acting took precedence. So I went to drama school rather than university when I left home. But it was there that I learned the technique which actually informs most of the reason why I, I write as I do, which was the Stanislavski method technique, which is a method actors learn for, which helps them inhabit the entirety of the, of the character in that moment while bringing all of their history with them and and allowing everything that happens in that moment and everything that's happening to the body in that moment to affect the performance. So several years later when I sat down to write A Girl as a Half-Formed Thing, that was the only approach I knew to character. Luckily character was what I was interested in. So I really started with that process and it was about making language do what the body does for the actor and working out how it needed to change in order to fulfil that, all the requirements of that. When it comes to the modernist tradition, I feel as though I'm tagging on at the end to the coattails. I object to the notion that modernism is is done. I feel it has actually increasing relevance to the world today and to writers today, and particularly, I think, as as a woman, there is a lot about the life of the body, which those techniques can be useful to explore. So I do feel part of that tradition, although perhaps on a on a wave further back. <laughs> I think modernism is increasingly relevant today because the the circumstances that brought it into being, the, the fracturing of the known world and of reality, is happening again now in the world that we see around us. And actually the old ways of, of speaking and writing about what is happening in the world no longer seem to be able to fulfil all that they need be able to carry sufficient meaning to express what's going on in the world and I think this is an ideal breeding ground for a resurgence of modernism. It is an ability to look at the world in a larger way, in a way that, that linear language is incapable of expressing fully. the comparisons to Joyce are fairly torturous for me at this stage. I understand why, in a way, people make them, and of course it's incredibly flattering, and it's because I'm an Irish writer and I'm interested in the possibilities of language and I'm interested in that legacy of modernism. But really that's where it ends for me. I'm not an imitator of Joyce. I'm not even after the same things as him. I'm after something that is much more human and personal and intimate. I want to go as far inside the human inside the personal as is possible as much as language is capable of expressing and and I think those sort of vistas inside that hugely inform who we are as people are so often ignored in literature because language is so inadequate. I 
I suppose early on I watched a lot of movies, old movies on TV and I was probably quite influenced in that and had a, a hyperactive imagination from an early age which was fairly torturous I think for anyone who came in contact with me as a child. Being raised um, in a strict Catholic environment has tremendous benefits for the imagination. And I was always extremely fond of all the lurid stories from the Bible as a child. And I think they do incite you to murderous thoughts as a small child and to imagine another life and another way of living. About six months after I left drama school, my brother was diagnosed with cancer and uh, he died a year later and I spent a lot of that time taking care of him and after that experience I didn't really want to act anymore and I didn't really know what I wanted to do anymore. I came back to London, I did a lot of temping and then I decided that I would go to Russia. So I went to live in St. Petersburg for four months in 2000. And that was really the place where I realised it was time to start taking writing seriously. I was sort of there and I immersed myself in the cultural life and at that time you could still afford to go to the Mariinsky every night or the Mali Drama Theatre or go and see a concert or, you know, go and stare at Dostoevsky's actual hat in the Dostoevsky house for hours on end uh, and wander the holes of the Hermitage. And that's what I did. And it sort of brought me back to myself. So I came back to London and started doing the temping again, but now getting up at 5, 5.30 in the morning and writing. Both books arrived in completely different ways. The Girl is a Half-Warm Thing I wrote in six months when I was 27, and I did three drafts in those six months, and then waited nine years before I could find a publisher. Whereas The Lesser Bohemians took me nine years to write. And whenever I tell people this, they always doubt me and think that I must have gone to live in Spain for five years in the middle of that. But I assure you, I did not. I sat at the desk every day for nine years and wrote the book. And then it was published quite painlessly. I think I first fell for Sarah Kane just as I was beginning to write A Girl as a Half-Formed Thing. So back in 2003, I went to see a, a production at the Arcola Theatre in Dalston. And I was really taken aback by the brutality of, of the writing and overwhelmed by it. And, you know, it forced me to confront something within myself that I had not even been aware existed, which was this feeling that it was not for women to write viciously and brutally and angrily and unsentimentally about the body 
or the sexual experience or sexual abuse, that the role of the writer, of the female writer particularly, was not to make everything all right. That here is the world and the world is a terrible place. And that is the end of the sentence. There is no but that comes after that to comfort. So it seems clear to me that the way to write about sex is to not set it apart from any other kind of writing and that one should write about it in exactly the same way one should write about absolutely everything else. And so for me, particularly in The Lesser Bohemians, sex is is a mode of character development and it is a way of, of building the relationship between the two central characters. So there is a huge amount of sex that happens in the book. I think it is something that's discouraged. And I know in, I had some reviews of the book that were tremendously nicker-sniffing about it and prurient, and mostly by men who were alarmed, shall we say, by this sort of intimate writing about sex by a woman and um, and that amused me tremendously, I must say. It was, in fact, the exact reason why I was writing what I was writing. <laughs> I think there are a lot of women coming through who are, who are interested in writing about sex. That's probably always been the case. But it's it's a it's a difficult path to go down. It's not one that's particularly well appreciated, and it's to be noted that there are no good sex awards, only bad sex awards, <laughs> which are not that helpful, really. I did grow up in the west of Ireland. I did go to drama school, and in a girl as a half room thing, I did lose a brother to a brain tumor. But neither of the books are are a memoir, I suppose. It is about, I suppose I always have to go against myself in order to write. I, I have to write the thing that I don't want to write, which then doesn't mean that I write about that passage of my life, but rather I must find a point of discomfort and use that as the, as the jumping off point. But it does obviously create a little oddness in that people tend to think that they are much more autobiographical than they are. But, uh, you know, I also tend to think when people feel that, that's because they feel what they're reading is truthful. And, and that is what I'm aiming for. Ema McBride's book, The Lesser Bohemians, is out now and it's published by Faber. Go buy it. It's very, very good. It's excellent. <laughs> Next week, we're going to talk about happiness with Lucy Calloway. And we'll also be hearing from the American writer Patricia Lockwood, who grew up with a gun-toting Catholic priest for a father, and she's just written a memoir about it. Everything else is produced by Chica Ayres. We've been John Sonia and Griselda Murray-Brown, and our music is composed and produced by Fatim. <laughs>